0: out of this message. Amen. amen. Amen, amen. Thank you. Good morning. I'd also like to welcome back Craig and Cynthia, who were also in Israel. So please, I'm just going to volunteer this, but please pick their brains. I'm sure they would love to share where Jesus actually walked and actually was. I love it when Melinda says, Jesus was here. It's so awesome. <laughs> so, yes. So we're going to get into it. Um, We're still in Genesis chapter 12 and 13. And what I wanted to do was bring us back around to the reason why we are still in the Old Testament. Has anybody ever said to you, yeah, but that's the Old Testament? Yes. The Old Testament is not the left half of the Bible, right? The left half of the Bible connects to the right half of the Bible. It is the Bible, one of our values here, from visions and values, for those of you that go way back, which is now West Side 101, is the Bible plus nothing, minus nothing. And if we only read the right half of the Bible, we don't have the full story, do we? The Old Testament versus the New Testament, are they different? They are a little bit different, but they do unite seamlessly together. We will still, I promise you, find Jesus in the Old Testament, and that's the goal to do that. They unite seamlessly together, and they are the full and complete account of creation, right? So I'm going to start off with uh, putting my glasses on here that, yes, thank you. I like to hide these around the fire station and my house. I buy them at Costco in a three-pack now, so I just fling them out. (laughs) 2 <laughs> Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 17 this is Paul speaking to Timothy it says but as for you continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus it says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's all scripture. And it's important for us to understand that at this point in time, if you had asked them, what does it say in the New Testament? there was no such thing as the New Testament, right? The New Testament is a a collection of writings and letters that we have that has been compiled with the Old Testament. If you had asked them what the Old Testament says about it, they would have given you the equally confused look because again, there was no such thing as the Old Testament. What they called it was the sacred writings or the Torah, right? So if you had referred to that, then they would know what you're talking about. There was no chapters, there was no verses. This is all stuff that has given us the address to be able to look something up quickly, right? So stick with me on that. Um, sacred learning is what they would have understood that from, or the, the Torah. And I'd like to bring us back to a couple of phrases, and this is, this is why the Old Testament, why do we look back in that? It is written, remember that phrase. This phrase appears numerous times, used by many, but most importantly is used by Jesus himself. Luke chapter four, verse four. And Jesus answered him, "It is written." Matthew four seven. Again, it is written. Luke four eight. It is written. Matthew twenty one thirteen. It is written. Matthew eleven ten. It is written. Matthew four ten. Etc. 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 It is written. This is what he referred to. This was the law. This is where they got their history from. It would be like this: if we were just living in the right half of the Bible and didn't look back to our history, we know we win in the end, right? Yes, we win. Champion. Jesus is the champion. He died on the cross, but okay, what did I do, and what, did, what, what was it? Can you tell me about that sin thing? Can you tell me about all that, that other stuff? Can you tell me about the history that we have? That's the important stuff of this as a complete and whole unit right here. God must reveal himself. for us to know him. He has revealed himself as creator through his creation and has especially revealed himself as the spirit-inspired word of God right here in the Bible. Oftentimes we ask this question. What is God's will for my life? Can you tell me what God's will for my life is? And God says, I wrote my will for your life in the book that sits in front of you. Crack it open. (laughs) Start there. It doesn't say everything. We don't have all the answers. But That's where the faith comes in, to know and understand that the promise still exists and the promise is right here. This is where we get God's will for our life. This is why we need to get the word of God into our brains, the complete and whole word of God. Amen on that? All right, good, good job. Hang with me here. So we're gonna start out in Genesis 12. Abram is called. Genesis 12, verses one through three. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So he establishes three promises in here. Number one, he says, I will make you into a great nation. That's still obvious. Uh, for us today, for his offspring, still exist. I will make your name great. Even non-believers know the name of Abram. Abram and Abraham, same name, but in Genesis chapter 17 with the, um, with the covenant of circumcision, his name was then changed. I'm going to let Joe hit that one later on, so we'll <laughs> let him take that. But anyways, so same person, Abram, Abram, Abraham. The last one is, I will bless those who bless you and, the, and curse those who curse you, and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. This right here is where we find Jesus in the Old Testament. This is very important. Jesus is the ultimate end or peak to the lineage of Abram, traced back through Matthew 1, chapter chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. I'm going to read a portion of it, but this is where we get back into that genealogy. Genealogy in the New Testament. And the importance of this genealogy is that we have to be able to trace this back, right? We have to understand that, yes, this is where this came from. So I'll read part of it, and then I'll, I'll end up on there. It says... A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Jesse, was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram was the father of Minadab, Minadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. That's not, it's only a a third of it. (laughs) So I'm going to end on this. (laughs) Um, Right here, where I lost my place. Okay, 17. Thank you. It's because I flipped my page back. I put my Bible over that. 17, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abram to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Right here is where we find Jesus in the Old Testament. He was speaking and foreshadowing. Why? Because the word says he is the ultimate blessing for all the people, not just his chosen people, all the people, Jews, Gentiles, sinners, saints alone. Jesus is absolutely the ultimate blessing for everybody. And that's the most important thing. I can't tell you how many times I have scanned over that verse and not really studied and dove into it. Every single word is important in Scripture right here. All the people. So what did Abraham do with that encounter with the Lord? Let's talk about that. So Abram went out as the Lord had told him. He left. He just went. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had and accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord had appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. This is something that we should understand is something that he does. He builds an altar. This shows importance. This shows that he's putting God first says, then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. How old was Abram when he left? 75. All right. So God said, you're 75 years old. I want to send you to a land that I will show you. He didn't say, I bought a house for you in Tennessee and, uh, or wherever it's a popular place right now. And the moving truck is on its way. And I'm going to, you know, plan that out for you. And you're going to know where you're going. No, he said, I want you to go. And, and he said, this was important because I missed this too. This was very interesting. Joe brought this up in the, the end of the last sermon. All of his family was still alive. They were all alive all the way back to Noah. So he left everybody. He left, I mean, he, he brought his servants and his stuff. But that family was extremely important, and he left all of them. So God was really pulling him away. He wasn't saying Now you're 18, and it's time for you to go get a job, go to school, and all that, and then just move down the road, go to college. We'll still hang out. No, he said, I want you to go and leave your family. That's extremely important to understand, and he did. He left. That's what the Bible says. He left. He obeyed the Lord and what he had to say, remembering the importance of every word of scripture. Bethel and Ai on the west, Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Hang on to that phrase, because we'll come back to it a little bit later on. It says, he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. God showed himself in some way to Abram at that point. It doesn't say exactly. He was probably not in his holiest form, because Abram would have fell over dead, right? God says, if you see me in my, in my glorified body, you're going to die. But he appeared to him. He spoke to him, somehow face to face. That's amazing right there. And that's probably why he obeyed and left, right? So, The significance of building an altar. First off, he built one at the tree of Moreh. So this is in the land of the Canaanites, and they were a cursed people, right? From the father of him, again, the grandsons of, or the, the grandchildren of Noah, they were cursed, and they were pagans. And this was the tree of Moreh was a teaching spot, and it's where they taught their their pagan ways, right? And so what did Abram do? He showed up there, and he claimed it for the Lord. He built an altar right there. And this is where he probably taught from. He probably said, this is my God. This is the only God that exists in the universe. He didn't know what the universe was at that point in time. That's my own words. But that's the point is he built an altar there. So that altar is, what is that? It's a place of sacrifice. It's a, it's, it's a place of covenant and promise. It's a place of proclamation that there is one true God. It's a place where God appears, Right? He appeared to them. Think about the altar encounters of our own lives where God meets us, where where he appears. Think about things as simple as like if you're married, like your your wedding, like that altar, and not an idol, right? Don't hear what I'm not saying, but an altar, and that's a moment where you covenant together and you you make that promise. And and God is there and he meets you there. And sometimes we need to return to those places. The birth of your children, when my children were born. Corbin was a C-section, but the other two I delivered. But I I tell you, I honestly saw a vision of God handing me my children. And I I think about this today, and it almost brings me to tears. I I mean, I love my boys. And it's amazing. Like, that's an altar for me of just recovenanting with my kids and just, you know, wanting the best for them and wanting them to be in the Lord. That's extremely important. Often we need to return to that altar to commune, repent, revive, and remember. And so um, from Revelation, there was a a famous woman in this church who gave a wonderful talk to uh, a group of uh, women, and and it was about returning to your first love. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves to be apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember Therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life." which is in the paradise of God. Amen. Sometimes we need to return to our first love. Back to those altars, back to those important parts where we met God, where God met us, and he came down, and he redeemed us. Amen. <clears throat> Abram, the father of faith in Sarai in Egypt. This is an interesting point because we assume that Abram was, you know, extremely faithful, but he also did have some sidetracks as well. It's important to understand that he was called because God chose him, not because he was a perfect person. The same reason that God calls us to do things is because he chooses us and not because we're perfect people. There's redemption in that. It says, now there was a famine in the land, and so Abram went down from Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful of appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Let's just be reminded that sometimes bad things follow a trip to Egypt. <laughs> so many instances in the Bible. At this point in, in uh, Abram's life, we see that there's a little bit of a, a in, on this on this faith. Is it as un- unshakable as we first thought? Maybe not. So he asks Sarai, who would be, her name would be changed to Sarah eventually, to call herself his sister. This is not entirely a lie, but again used to preserve his own skin. From Genesis 20, chapter 11, verse, or excuse me, 20, yeah, 11 through 13, Abram said, I did not, he's speaking to Abimelech at this point, um, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in all this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife, and when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this kindness must, you must do me. At every place to which I come, say of me he is my brother. Somewhat of a half-truth, but really, again, kind of designed to, to save his own skin. So at this point, really, he puts the burden of his life preservation on Sarai, to, to say that. right. So, in this portion of society, they had what's called fratriarchal Law. And that means that if a husband and wife entered a foreign country or an enemy land, they could kill him and take the wife. But if it was brother and sister, then they would have to bargain and essentially pay him off, which is, you know, he would get sheep and goats and, and whatever the bargaining was at that point in time. And he knew about this. And so that was, that was essentially what was going on. He's like, all right, you know, save my skin and, uh, and I'll get rich because of it. That's, that's my own thing on there. But anyways... There are a couple of points on this. He number 1 doesn't put his faith for in God for trust throughout the famine. Remember because it says there was a severe famine in the land. We've got to look back to what the promises were just a few sentences ago, right? I'll make you into a great nation. You will have offspring that can't even be counted. If he starves to death, can can he be made into a great nation? Probably not, right? He hasn't had any children at this point in time, so his lineage can't be carried on. So he's not trusting in what those promises were from just a few chapters back. He doesn't trust in the Lord's preservation of his life because he says, if you, if you call yourself my sister, then they won't kill me. Not the God of the universe came down and said that he's going to preserve me, right? Those are the instances that, that really just helped me to think, okay, you know, he was, he was a person. He was a human being. He was a man fallen and sinful just like anybody else. He had great, great faith in many other things. There's a, a few other instances of him lying that, you know, that really still resound to this day. So his relationship with Hagar, who was Sarai's servant, bore the offspring Ishmael. Muhammad, from the Islam religion, claims to have lineage back to Ishmael. That battle rages on today. The battle for the Holy Land is thousands of years, and it still exists. So our choices do have consequences. And some of those things carry on and on and on. It's extremely important to note that God chose Abram. And this, again, is somebody who had great faith. When he was at, asked to sacrifice in the future chapters, his son Isaac, on the altar, he didn't even hesitate. He was going to go do that, but he knew that God would provide the ram. Absolutely knew. That faith is it's pretty astounding. But again, you know, he's just a man. It's, it's good for us to remember that. <clears throat> So God, the great redeemer, just continues his plan with Abram, even though he's off wandering in the desert over in Egypt at this point in time. He's going to continue his promise. He will always continue his promises in His li- in, in our life. All we have to do is just continue to seek him. God rescues Abram from his lies about his wife, Sarai. God even maintains the blessing that was given to him within his deceit. We'll see that in the, in the chapter ahead. God made promises to Abraham that he would keep. Even Abram's disobedience, God, Jesus, has always, always, always been the rescue plan, even in our disobedience. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us, that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. As he walked up that hill to Calvary, as we were throwing things at him and beating him. And I say we because it's our sin. It's my sin that put him on the cross. As we were spitting on him and yelling at him and accusing him, he walked up the hill to Calvary where he was nailed to that cross. And he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And if it was just for you, he would have done that for you. Or if it was just for me. That's the redemption that God has for us. That is God's plan for us, continue in redemption, even when we don't deserve it. And right here, he didn't deserve it, but God will continue his rescue plan. Amen? Amen. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with a great plague because of Sarai, Abram's wife. The Egyptians were extremely superstitious people. And when something like this happened, they're like, all right, something's out of line. Why are we all getting sick and scabbed up and all this? So they clearly nailed it down to, however they found out the truth, the Bible doesn't say, but they figured this out. So he he called Abram and he said, what is this you've done to me? Why do you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. God maintained even that, what Pharaoh gave him throughout that, even on a time where he, was, he took a right turn and he was supposed to head straight ahead. It's an excellent example. Even though we we're imperfect and fallen, God can and will continue to use us even in our imperfection. Saying yes to God's will in our life is that most first important step. As an aside, um, when I was asked to come onto eldership, it was funny because previously I was telling the story and Margo used to say, she'd go, yeah. Hey, uh, Chris, I see eldership on your shoulders. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, you know, like, okay. (laughs) So that was me and my disobedience. Like when, and oftentimes this is how, you know, God can spur somebody on to speak something. They see something in you. And so that just required to say yes. And, and it was interesting because during the interview, you know, I was asked, well, you know, do you feel called like to be an elder? And I was like, no, like, I didn't feel like God came down to the altar, appeared and said, you shall be. That just wasn't it. But I was willing to say yes, we decided several years ago. I'm gonna say yes to whatever the Lord has for me. And that was the most important thing. I will say yes to push open the doors to see if they open. And I will trust that God is gonna close the doors that he doesn't want me going through. And sometimes people can speak into your lives and all we need to do is say yes to what God has going. And we need to trust that again, he'll open those doors or he'll close them if it's, not, if it's not within his will for our lives. Amen. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven through 13 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So moving into chapter 13 here, this is when Abram and Lot separate. We don't hear much about Lot until now. Says so, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Negev and Negev are the same word, just um, sometimes they're pronounced differently. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, silver and gold, and he journeyed back to the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where he, his tent had been at the beginning. Between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And Abram had called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot who went with them also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support the both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. All that, all that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So the Canaanites were again, um, the cursed people, and they were basically taking the best part of the land, like everything that were the animals could eat. They were already, already eating that up. So there just wasn't room for them. Where was Lot in the last chapter? We're now being reintroduced for him. I, I don't know where Lot was in the last chapter. He just said that he went with him. And obviously, he was with him in Egypt. And obviously, he was garnering up possessions at the same time. So that's what we know. And here we see him reintroduced back into here. And he will become um, extremely important. He, he is actually very important. Abram's returning to the land with a description of emphasizing the beginning and the first. He went back to where his tent was at the beginning. At the first, returning to his first love, returning to the altar for communion, repentance, proclamation, right? The land could not sustain both of them together. The the Perizzites and the Canaanites were basically eating up all of the land. So moving on, verse 8 says, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities and the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners of the Lord. So here Abram just shows his humility, right? Lot is his nephew. So essentially, Lot would be in a position of subservience to Abram. Makes sense. But he allows Lot to choose. He says, hey, if you go left, then I'll go right. That's giving him the choice. If you go high, I'll go low. You can pick for yourself. And then it says, So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. He literally picked the best spot. It was well watered like the garden of the Lord. That was a spectacular place. That's a pretty good description of something back in the desert. Well watered like the garden of the Lord in the land of Egypt where the Nile flows through, floods, there's crops, everything. That's why they went there. Lot shows his selfishness and willing to act on his own accord for himself and take the best of what he sees. And Lot chose to move his tent as far as Sodom. Now, you don't even have to be a believer to know what the city of Sodom represents. Historically, one of the most vile and evil places ever on earth. It is famous. It's so famous, it's in our penal code. Sodomy, that's where it comes from, right? It's famous, and it's not famous for good things. It's an important thing to know that he put his tent right next door. Probably not the best of ideas, right? This would would prove to be a near-fatal mistake in the future, although... Let's re- also remember that Lot was not beyond redemption. I, I don't want to um, again ruin the future, but he is actually rescued from Sodom in the future. Let, you know, Joe will have more on that later. But it, let's just remember that. So he's he's edging right right here at this point in time. He's putting his edge on the tent of where he probably should not be. The importance of a description of Sodom. So remember, I had how I said, hang on to that phrase where. You had Bethel and Ai, and then he headed off to the east, right? This is the only spot in the Bible that gives any description as to where the directions or the roadmap to Sodom was. And Sodom doesn't exist anymore. It was destroyed. And if you look at a couple of different, if you look at different Bible maps, it'll show it in different places because up until very recently, they, they hadn't really found it. There was nothing there. And so there is some recent discoveries that that, um, that they have found. So back to that description, looking east over the kikar of the valley, and a kikar is a word that means a circle or something that's round. It's normally used to describe like a loaf of bread, a pita bread, or something like that. But in this case, it's used to describe a round spot in the valley. And so if you look at the map that exists on that, I don't know if Sid can bring that up or not, There's there's a description of when you actually see the photo looking from where Abram and Lot would have looked, you would see a very round spot, a lush spot in the valley. And and it says, heads off to the east. This is where it would have put the city of Sodom if we're going by that description. But Sodom was destroyed by fire and brimstone. Genesis 29, or 19, 23 through 25 says, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. This is when he had escaped out of there. Then the Lord rained, down, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground, it was scorched earth. There was nothing there. Nothing came back for 700 years. God burned that place up and it was gone. Why is it so important to know about Sodom? because I'll tell you what, biblical archaeology is like one of the coolest things when science proves God and proves the word true every time. Craig and Cynthia, you were just there, right? It was in the, Jesus was here. It was in the Bible. You saw it. How much of a faith builder is that? When we find those things, when we see those, it's absolutely amazing, So a recent excavation in what is called the Tal el-Hammam site shows evidence of furious and fiery destruction in the Middle Bronze Age. The Middle Bronze Age was the time of Abram. This is consistent with the time of Abram, and the destruction is consistent with the biblical account of Genesis. There's a website you can go to. It's called digsodom.com. Not dig like it's cool, but dig like go dig. If you Actually, you can even volunteer. And it, talk, it will link you to the Tal El-Hammam uh, website, and it goes through all the historical archaeology. Uh, you can get linked to 87 pages worth of geological science that talks about all of the things that went on there. And importantly, there is a layer that they found that's about 18 inches deep, and it's a layer of... Um, shocked quartz. It's a layer of pottery that has been destroyed and melted. It is bones that have been destroyed 18 inches deep, right? And they found this. It's actually there. This is an excerpt from The Current, which is a science and technology publication from University of California at Santa Barbara. It's called Fire and Brimstone. Tal el-Hammam has been the focus of an ongoing debate as to whether it could be the biblical city of Sodom. One of the two cities in the Old Testament book of Genesis where, that were destroyed by God for how wicked they had become and their inhabitants had become. One denizen, Lot, saved by two angels, who instruct him not to look back as they flee. Lot's wife, spoiler alert, however, lingers and is turned into a pillar of salt. Meanwhile, fire and brimstone fell from the sky. Multiple cities were destroyed. Thick smoke rose from the fire. City inhabitants were killed, and the crops were destroyed. And what sounds like an eyewitness account of a cosmic impact event. It is a satisfying connection to make. All right. Genesis 13. We're gonna, This is Abram's selflessness confirmed back in God's promises. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are northward and southward, eastward and westward for all the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one could count the dust of the earth your offspring could be counted arise and walk through the length and breadth of the land for I will give it to you here we have what is a stark contrast between himself and Lot Lot chose for himself he looked down he took the best Abram let God choose for him. Lot lifted up his eyes and gazed upon the valley. The Lord said, Abram, lift up your eyes. See what I will give to you. I will, I will, I will. It's the Lord's will. And again, it's of importance to understand that that even though Lot has these misgivings, he He eventually is saved from the destruction. He's the the one family that gets saved from the destruction of Sodom. Otherwise, everything was gone, scorched earth. And to land here, Genesis 13, 18 says, So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which were at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. He's back on track. This is the first thing that he's doing again. When he shows up, he builds an altar. And he builds an altar for sacrifice. He builds an altar for communion. He builds an altar for proclamation that God is the one true God and none of the other little g-gods exist. This is what he is proclaiming. Back to that place of sacrifice, repentance, and proclamation. Back to his first love. And ready to continue to answer God's call. Amen? All right.